Dr. David White here, CRIM 411, this time in chapter 13 of our text, Sense and Nonsense About Crime, Drugs, and Communities. Chapter 13 titled, Sense and Nonsense About Drugs and Crime, and so the focus here on drug control strategies. Walker illustrates how interconnected America's response to drugs has been with our overall crime control strategies. Drugs have been the focal point of crime, the crime problem in the United States for years, he claims. Uh, this point is not controversial, meaning it's very clear. Directly and indirectly, uh, they, meaning drugs, uh, were responsible for dramatic rise in gun violence and the murder rate in the 1990s, gang violence, soaring prison populations, worsening crisis in race relations, drug-related decisions uh, on drug testing, for example, all of these things have contributed in, in Walker's uh, mind here to the erosion of individual rights uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, it should be noted that the drug crisis in America is also an international problem, really. That is to say, international drug cartels are responsible for most of the drugs distributed in the U.S. Walker tells us Mexican cartels alone are responsible for 90% of cocaine uh, imported into the United States and about 70% of all drugs imported. The um, area known as the Golden Crescent, what we call Southwest, or area of Southwest Asia, what we commonly refer to as the Middle East, as well as the Golden Triangle, which is the area over in Southeast Asia, are, are responsible for growing a large amount of the opium uh, responsible for heroin production uh, and uh, so that area too is important to us when we think about the international reach of this. Collectively our drug control strategies in this country have ultimately been a disaster and uh, uh, it's driven by misinformation, by fear of epidemic level issues uh, and in some cases just straight up racism. Myths and realities about drug use and drug-related crime is the next header here as Walker starts with a bit of historical hysteria over drugs, which, which again includes much misinformation. This includes, includes things like reefer madness uh, with wild stories about marijuana-driven people into frenzy and violence and making women sexually promiscuous and so forth. If you haven't ever uh, looked that up, look up reefer madness on YouTube. This hysteria later included concern over exaggerated fears uh, related to crack babies where they thought uh, there'd be severe and lifelong effects uh, from babies being born to mothers who were using crack. Walker says studies ultimately found little performance difference in children born to crack mothers and non-crack mothers by the time the, ch the child was at age four. Information uh, included the fact that alcohol actually seems to be uh, more impactful on the fetus than crack cocaine. How extensive is illegal drug use, Walker questions. Uh, well, to assess the extent of drug use, researchers primarily turn to self-report studies that show how many people say they use certain types of drugs. Walker points to several of these. And in addition to this, we also have a few other mechanisms, but primarily we look at self-report data. Walker points to National Survey on Drug Use and Health, Monitoring the Future Study, uh, the Drug Use Warning Network, uh, Arrestee Drug Abuse Monitoring, 
uh, and we might also include the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System survey, uh, which evaluates drug use among middle school, high school youth every two years. Walker gives us a few facts about the extent of drug use, which includes the fact that as of 2012, about 41 million Americans over the age of 12 had used some type of illicit drug uh, in the past 12 months. And about 125 million will use illicit drugs over their lifetime. That's about one third of the U.S. population, folks. Uh, in 2012, about 15.9% of whites reported using illicit drugs in the past year, compared to 18.7% among African Americans and 15.7% uh, for Latinos. Uh, thus, drug use among black Americans is about 18% higher than that is for whites. That's not very much. That's fairly close uh, to one another. Yet there are radically different rates of arrest, radically different rates of conviction and sentencing for these drug-related offenses, which demonstrate that black citizens face significant racial disparities in the enforcement of drug crimes. Mm -hmm. While Walker uh, does tell us that drug use is down over time, he sort of underestimates these declines. And uh, if you look at the youth risk behavior surveillance data, uh, you can see significant drops, not only in drugs, but also in alcohol use uh, among teens. From 1999 or 97 uh, to today, uh, these drops are substantial in most all categories. Uh, when we think about the drug, crime connection. Uh, it's a popular myth. He says that drugs cause crime. That is that uh, we reduce illegal drug abuse. Well, then we thereby reduce crime. The stereotype persists that drug crazed criminals who uh, basically robs or murders uh, while high on drugs. Uh, another widespread belief is that drug addicts rob, steal, support their drug habits. Truth is, Walker says, much more complex than that. Standing that up is sort of a straw man uh, argument. He defines uh, three ways that drugs really do, in fact, connect with crime. There are drug-defined crimes, okay, drug-defined crimes, such as possession and sale of drugs. Those are the types of crimes that are directly associated with the fact that drugs are made illegal. These crimes are inherently part of making uh, the drugs illegal, socially constructed process of what's legal, what's illegal. Second, there are drug-related crimes. These are the crimes that are either committed by people on drugs or further their addiction or habits. And then there are crimes, he says, that are associated with drug usage, meaning that the offender uh, was using drugs around the time he or she committed the offense, but the crime's not necessarily directly related or caused uh, specifically, rather, by their drug use. He points to some statistics uh, <clears throat> concerning drug use among those people who are coming into jails. And so in Chicago, 2012 showed that 86% of adult males arrested tested positive for at least one type of drug. In Atlanta, it was 62%. And so these numbers sort of illustrate those interconnections as well. However, they don't necessarily imply that drugs cause the person to commit their crime. I think about drug policy choices. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Starting in the 1970s, uh, U.S. took a very hard line in sort of this war on drugs approach to our drug control problems and drug control strategy. Walker offers a conceptualization of different types of approaches to 
uh, drugs as sort of conceptualized here by Peter uh, Rutter, uh, who said policy advocates sort of fall into one of three groups that he uh, defines here as hawks, doves, and owls. And so in this conceptual approach, those hawks, a predatory bird, a bird of prey here, uh, emphasize law enforcement and stricter approaches while the owl uh, approach prefers prevention and treatment, education, those sort of things. Doves, the dove tends to look at the drug control policy as an issue of public health, advocate public health approaches. In its most liberal form, uh, the, the dove group uh, uh, advocates legalization of drugs. But generally speaking, more of the moderate approach of that group is sort of looking at and trying to use a paradigm of harm reduction. Harm reduction. Walker says those groups so vary uh, in whether they think drugs are the problem or they think our response to drugs is the problem. The hawks, of course, believe that drugs are the problem, while the owls and doves tend to more think that the American response to the drug problem is the issue and not the drugs themselves. In the war on drugs approach, uh, which, which has always, of course, taken a more hawkish approach, as you might say, based on that um, uh, example given, uh, it's very punitive. It's very enforcement-centered, and that has pretty much led the way through the 20th century. Number of persons arrested on drug offenses increased from 601,975 to 954,000 in 2011. Now represents 12% of all arrests. Walker saying ACLU data uh, shows that between 2001 and 2010, 8 million people were arrested for marijuana charges, with 80% of those being for possession, not for sale. Uh, the, uh, this represents basically 52% of all drug arrests. Furthermore, the number of people uh, in state prisons for drug offenses uh, skyrocketed from 19,000 in 1980 to 237,000 by 2011. People in federal prison on drug offenses, meanwhile, rose from 4,700 to 94,600 over that same time period. Walker points out uh, how the war on drugs has disproportionately affected uh, uh, and made racial minorities the center of enforcement efforts. He says, quote, African Americans are treated more harshly at every stage of the criminal justice system, and the resulting cumulative disadvantage generates the enormous disparity between the percentage of African Americans in prison and their representation in the general population. Walker reports that drug enforcement is always basically focused uh, uh, on lower-level dealers in minority neighborhoods and arrest patterns are not reflective of self-reported drug use, uh, which is fairly consistent across races. Overall, the street-level enforcement is ineffective and there's no evidence of the effectiveness specifically of crackdowns where we just decide we're going to put an emphasis on rounding up all the, the drug offenders we can find. Um, some focused deterrence strategies do show a bit more promise. While the primary focus has been on street-level drug enforcement, such as crackdowns, focused deterrence strategies, some strategies focus on the drug supply side. Uh, this involves interdiction and eradication. So interdiction being trying to intercept it at our borders, eradication being, you know, uh, dealing with sort of eradicating it within our, our own boundaries, uh, 
around going out and cutting down the marijuana fields, basically uh, uh, doing an eradication program. Walker generally points to the U.S. has done a very poor job controlling the flow of drugs in the country. Citing federal statistics shows the Mexican cartels alone are now responsible for more than 90% of the cocaine in the country. Uh, the estimated wholesale market of these drugs from Mexico uh, is between 13 and $43 billion a year. Uh, and the U.S. government has worked in a variety of ways to sort of slow it down, uh, but it remains a major, major problem. We look at tougher sentencing laws as one other strategy approach uh, here. Uh, tougher sentencing laws for drug offenses, uh, another uh, effort that we see, uh, this represents the incapacitation deterrence strategies, as previously addressed in the other chapter, these approaches are not effective. Uh, Walker points to sort of lessons from history uh, that might be comparable to what we see in drug enforcement. The primary one here, of course, being the era of prohibition of alcohol from 1920 through 1933 when alcohol uh, was prohibited. And these efforts, of course, were a huge failure, basically led to underground networks of sale and consumption of alcohol across the U.S. Uh, and uh, basically abandoned in 1933. He also compares it to social gambling as just another example where we still see laws against gaming and those are starting to loosen up, but uh, uh, basically uh, not a viable form of control. Gun control laws, I rarely engage anyone uh, in conversations about gun control because it's so banal. Uh, just uh, really, it's a hotly debated issue uh, in reality. Uh, it's just a, a political issue that people more or less have opinions of one way or another. We can use it as a proxy to decide whether or not you're a Republican or conservative or you're a liberal Democrat, right? And so America's, the reality is America's fascination with guns is not easily controlled, and therefore efforts to sort of tighten restrictions rarely have any effect. And the idea of getting all guns out of circulation uh, really is similar to the belief that we can take the penny out of the monetary system of circulation. So if you haven't followed that, people have talked about getting rid of the penny, but as you know, the penny's still here, and even if they took it out of circulation, people stopped circulating it as part of our currency. Uh, the reality is they would still be around. You'd be able to collect them probably for another two, three hundred years, I bet. Uh, maybe longer than that. Simply too many uh, and no clear way of tracking guns, or the same way here. Uh, it's for those reasons that I basically have avoided Walker's chapter on gun control altogether. However, uh, I will summarize a few points here that he makes from that chapter on gun control. Basically his propositions, if you're following the book, and that is, uh, I'm going to directly quote them all here again from the chapter on gun control. Attempts to ban possession of handguns and certain kinds of guns are not a viable option for reducing crime, page 263. Laws that seek to keep guns out of the hands of criminals and mentally ill have at best limited effects and are easily evaded by black market, uh, by the black market in guns, 267. Uh, laws designed to allow more people to carry guns and laws that uh, allow them to use their guns in a greater range of circumstances more likely to increase rather than reduce homicides, uh, from page 272. Carefully designed and focused programs directed towards a small group of known offenders 
uh, have been found to be effective in reducing gun violence. Again, focused deterrence strategies uh, is basically the only proposition from that chapter that he says likely to have any success. With those things said, basically, Walker's general position is that gun laws are not very effective at reducing crimes. He also points to abortion laws, and so before Roe v. Wade in 1973, abortion is illegal in basically every state. Uh, these laws uh, did not eliminate abortions, and Walker claims the data shows uh, that there had been as many as one million abortions a year during that time frame. Uh, while Walker does not include it, there is actually some data <clears throat> that shows that uh, during the Roe v. Wade years, the number of abortions overall has declined. Walker also points to uh, sodomy, fornication, adultery, prostitution, just as other examples here. <clears throat> sex between members of the same sex, sodomy, uh, as well as uh, adultery, remained on the books as, uh, as the law uh, through the end of the 20th century, even though people broadly engaged in these activities since the beginning of recorded history. The Supreme Court declared sodomy laws unconstitutional only in 2003. Think about that, 2003. And by early 2014, uh, 18 states in the District of Columbia had legalized same-sex marriage. That's how much progress was made um, over a very short time span. Walker concludes essentially, in short, criminal law is inherently weak uh, in the fact of strong, and in the face rather of strong public demand for products or services, or basically when it's completely out of step with uh, society's uh, moral values. It's not very easy to enforce it, and the drug laws are an example of that. Uh, looking at demand reduction, and so going from sort of supply side to demand reduction is another approach here. The Al approach, favored by many liberals, uh, is, is this idea of education. So 1980s, uh, First Lady Nancy Reagan, of course, started the Just Say No campaign. Educational strategies, according to Walker, sort of fall into four different categories. There's uh, information dissemination, where we're see seeking to simply change someone's behavior by providing them with accurate information. This is seen in public health in different contexts, like sex ed or obesity, smoking, you know, etc. Um, second st strategy involves fear arousal, meant to frighten people. Uh, this includes commercials like we see public service sort of commercials where we see someone horribly deformed by tobacco-related cancer. You know, they're basically saying, don't let this happen to you. Uh, that's a, a strategy focused on fear arousal. Third strategy focuses on the moral appeal. Uh, and so the moral appeal uh, uh, appeals to the fact that it's just uh, supposedly morally wrong. And so we see this and like sex is a sin, sort of, or gambling is immoral, you know, and so you see uh, people play to that, moral entrepreneurs. Finally, we see effective education, effective with an A, uh, meant to change or develop a person's resiliency to certain undesirable behaviors. DARE, drug abuse resistance education, fits that mold in that it teaches kids pro-social ways of dealing directly with peer pressure interactions, right? And so over all these educational strategies, generally not very effective. 
specifically D.A.R.E., which started in Los Angeles with the LAPD in 1983. Uh, one of the most well-known drug educational strategies still used widely today because people love it. But the evaluation research is not good, not very effective at keeping kids off of drugs, which is its main focus, of course. Some educational programs, though, do work. And so Walker points to AIDS education through the 1990s as one early uh, one example of a successful educational program on public health issue uh, and uh, cuts down on the number of new infections. <clears throat> he points out that this is actually uh, the program was much more successful uh, at uh, particularly getting adult gay men uh, um, to practice uh, safer sex, but not as effective with poor or younger adults. Uh, in talking about drug treatment, drug treatment approaches, uh, another strategy here preferred pretty much by liberals. Uh, these approaches based on the idea of rehabilitation. It's a planned intervention, of course, to change behavior. Treatment strategies take many forms, uh, and, and several are discussed by Walker in the text here. Uh, he mentions methadone maintenance. Methadone is a substitute uh, for heroin, and so it's used to sort of wean people away from their heroin addiction, thereby move them away from that lifestyle as well. So this form of treatment is controversial, and clinics uh, that provide methadone maintenance often draw sharp criticisms from people in the neighborhood or areas where they're open. Uh, don't want them in their backyard sort of thing. And second, he discusses therapeutic communities, uh, basically residential programs using intensive therapy techniques uh, with, goal of, with the goal of treating, uh, temporarily helping people uh, break their bad habits, in some cases social networks that contribute to their addictions. These programs range in intensity from outpatient programs, uh, which are uh, of course, uh, the cheapest really outpatient options for drug users where uh, they're able to get counseling, either individual or group counseling, <clears throat> but there's not an inpatient dimension to that. Talks about faith-based uh, treatment programs as well. Again, just that faith-based approach, and so that we see some options there. Overall, the evidence of effectiveness of treatment programs, though, is mixed, and the reality is that it's hard uh, to get people to break drug addictions. National data indicate that almost half of all heroin addicts uh, users uh, in treatment had previously been in treatment three or more times. Seems, uh, uh, as Walker says, uh, to work for those addicts uh, who have, it, it only works for those addicts who have made a personal commitment to get off drugs. And uh, treatment does not seem to be able to reshape the addict's commitment to getting off drugs. Uh, they have to be able to make that personal commitment uh, to change. And if they have, well, then the programs are able to help them. Walker brings back up the idea of drug courts. Again, he seems to love these and uh, sh shows that they have promise uh, and uh, that, that they are able to sort of successfully steer people back around. They, of course, do have sort of a coercive element to them in that uh, the court is compelling the person to make the change. The final proposition Walker uh, poses here in the chapter is the idea of legalization. So we've seen legalization of recreational marijuana here in Michigan. 
Now, too many years ago, he says, uh, the idea of legalizing drugs was a wild, radical concept with its advocates on the fringe of society. Today, the situation is completely different, marked uh, by a radical shift in public attitudes and state laws regarding marijuana. That on page 352. He reports that in 2013, as much as 58% of Americans supported legalizing recreational marijuana, compared to 25% of Americans in 1995 and only 12% in 1969. Washington and Colorado were the first two states to legalize marijuana. The term legalization sometimes used interchangeably with the idea of decriminalization. Uh, there are debates though concerning the place of legalization or, or decriminalization and what that might look like in practice. So he points to different approaches here from what he calls uh, legalization maximalist uh, who advocate legalization of all drugs for all age groups. Uh, and on the other side of that extreme, he calls the, them legalization minimalists, who advocate only eliminating crimes related to marijuana, possession, and only for adults. And so those are sort of the two, two camps that he talks about. Walker ultimately concludes the impact of legalization on drugs uh, on serious crime is not known at this time. However, studies from Washington and Colorado on, uh, related to legalization of marijuana have generally reported uh, uh, that there's not a significant impact uh, on crime. At least that's the evidence thus far. In conclusion here, in the end, uh, drug use and drug-related crimes remain extremely complex. Uh, our approach, like crime in general, over the past half century has been to treat drugs in a very punitive, law enforcement oriented way. This approach has had significant social consequences, especially among communities of color, uh, where desperate treatment uh, um, at all levels of the criminal justice system, disproportional treatment at all levels of the criminal justice system has resulted in biased enforcement uh, of drug laws against non-white citizens. This has led to significant problems in stability, in trust, and legitimacy, not just in the criminal justice system, but in government more generally. The good news, which Walker tends to fail to acknowledge in this chapter, is that things are changing, and hopefully for the better. Policies are changing, enforcement is changing, and mass incarceration trends are turning around. This is occurring concurrently with relatively low crime rates, and so we need to acknowledge that. that these policies are being changed and we're not seeing radical increases uh, at the moment in crime. So it's pretty much where we leave things here for chapter 13. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to email them to me.